Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew's Gospel as we continue in our study of, of Advent, looking at Advent. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. I know you're disappointed that we're not going to read the genealogy. but Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that year after year after year we could come back, God, to the same accounts and be reminded of who you are and your mighty work among us. That God is not just what you do among us, but that you are present with us. Lord, to this morning I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us. Uh, God, to, to hear your words and to receive them by faith. We pray in your name. Amen. So Pastor David Strain tells the story that took place back in 2010 in England, actually. Uh, a hospital in England sent a routine letter to a patient informing them that they really ought to come in for an ultrasound because in seven months' time, they would be giving birth and quite possibly to twins. Now, you could only imagine the surprise as Mr. Hilton Platel, age 50, received this letter and he opened it to read it. He said, later he says, I was flabbergasted. He said, I read it a couple of times just to make sure that I didn't misunderstand it. But his wife, of course, found the hospital's mistake hilarious. She told newspapers, she said, that the baby certainly wasn't hers, and she had no idea how this whole thing happened. Now, as humorous as that story may be, the story, the account that we have before us this morning is of a very different tone. It's of a man named Joseph who in Matthew describes in verse 19 as a just man, probably meaning that he was very careful in his observance of the law of God. He feared God. He was a, a godly man, a righteous man. And, and he finds out that the woman he loves, Mary, a, a very humble woman, as we saw last week from Luke's gospel as we, we looked at that, this is a woman to whom he was betrothed. Now, kids, we don't have betrothal in the United States. So that's something that's a little bit foreign concept to us. We get engaged, and then we get married, okay? 
but betrothal was a little bit different than engagement. It was a it was a covenant commitment that a man and a woman made to each other, and so it was much more serious. As you can see that even from verse 19, if you look at verse 19, you see that Joseph is referred to Mary's husband. So even though they lived in separate houses, okay, she lived with her parents and he lived in a separate house um, and they had not been together living under the same roof he was considered the husband and and to break that betrothal which joseph was contemplating it would require a divorce you know an engagement if you're engaged to somebody you just say here i'm giving your ring back we're done but this was a, a much more formal thing so it was a, a very serious Commitment, And you can only imagine how Joseph felt when he heard that Mary, the love of his life, was pregnant. The couple didn't sleep together during their betrothal, and yet Mary began to show that she was pregnant. And, and I say that and from what the Bible text says. If you look at Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel and sort of put the timetable together... You remember from Luke that the angel appeared to Mary and announced that she would have a baby. And she explained how, and he explained to her how that was going to happen. And then she left Nazareth and traveled to the hill country of Judea, which is over 100 miles away. So it took her some time to get there, where she visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was old, but who had found out that she was going to have a baby. And, and so when Mary shows up, Elizabeth rejoices that the mother of her Savior would bless her with her presence. And so we know that Mary was, was pregnant at that time. And, and so then we read in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 56, that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for around three months. In other words, she stayed with her through the rest of her pregnancy until John the Baptist was born and then returned home. And so when you put all those pieces together with the travel time and everything, it's, it's most likely that Mary was three to four months pregnant at this time. And so that's when women typically begin to show, especially with their first baby. And yet Joseph had never been with Mary, but so it seemed she had been with someone else. So his bride-to-be was pregnant, but not with his child. So you could just imagine, if you would, how crushing that was for Joseph. I think when we think of the Christmas story, you know, we have this picture of the nativity scene and the angel over the nativity scene and some depictions have, you know, some kind of halo over Mary sometimes. And, you know, it's just this perfect picture type of scene in our mind as we think about the Christmas season. But these were very difficult circumstances for Joseph. How crushing it was for him. Joseph was a righteous man, and he wanted a righteous wife. And if Mary had been unfaithful to him before they'd even been married, then what, what kind of woman could she be? What, what kind of marriage could they have? And so in every moral, emotional, and legal way, he had a right to, to end this betrothal. And, and since Joseph was a just and upright man, he probably wanted no part of, of a corrupt marriage. But we also read in the text that he was not just a just man, but he was an also a merciful man because he could have exposed Mary uh, to public disgrace and to severe penalties. If you would, turn with me back to Deuteronomy 22. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 22, 23, where God's law 
addresses specifically the scenario that Mary finds herself in, or, or she appears to find herself in. Um, it speaks of a betrothed virgin, and if she has been with another man other than her husband, and what was to take place. And it says in Deuteronomy 22:23, if there be, if there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so in a scenario like this that, that, that Joseph is contemplating and thinking about, that it would have been within his right to have Mary stoned for her marital unfaithfulness, uh, her and the man that she had been with. Joseph had every right to do this, to, but he doesn't. He decides to divorce her quietly to preserve some sense of, of dignity with her. Now, we read in verse 18, it says, Now, after Jesus, oh, excuse me, uh, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, the Greek word that Matthew uses here for birth is not the ordinary word that you that a person would use to describe a, a typical birth. Actually, it literally is translated the origin of Jesus Christ was like this, or the special circumstances under which the birth took place. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to look at a number of these special circumstances surrounding Christ's birth and, and to see what those, uh, how, what those things, uh, how they apply to us, what they mean to us. First of all, I want us to see that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we see that actually repeated a number of times. In the opening verses, as it talks about Mary, as she's betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then, later on in verse 20, as Joseph was then considering whether to divorce her and stuff, then it says that the angel came and told Joseph to take her as his wife. It says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord left Joseph struggle a little bit in the circumstances that he was in before he sent an angel to Joseph to reveal to Joseph what he had already revealed to Mary and had taken place. God wanted Joseph to proceed with the marriage and he sent an angel to tell him that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the angel assures Joseph that things are not as they seem because the child is conceived not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Joseph can marry Mary. She is as pure and godly as, as he had hoped. But, but there's a lot more to this announcement than just really assuring Joseph that it's okay, Mary was not unfaithful to you. That's, it's more than that. The angel rightly calls Joseph the son of David. You notice that when he addresses him, he says, son of David, Joseph, son of David, because that's the line that Joseph was from. He was a descendant of David, and that was the line from which the deliverer of Israel was to come. The Messiah was to come from the line of David. He was to, to, to rule as, as David did. So Joseph is to take Jesus as his son and so adopt him into the line of David 
So Jesus will grow up in, in, in a normal household with a mother and a, a father, with love and nurture, uh, and with Mary as his mother, Jesus is, is fully man. But at the same time, because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is the Son of God. So he is both God and man, which is important for the mission he was sent to do here on earth. So we do see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But second of all, and this is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time, is to look at his special name and his special mission that was given to him as he came to earth. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so that's the name that, that Jesus was to be called, Jesus. Uh, and that's what Joseph named him, as we could see in verse 25. Jesus means the Lord saves. And there were a lot of different ways in which the Lord saved and, and delivered his people. He gave them food um, to those who were hungry while he was here on earth. He healed the sick. He comforted the brokenhearted. And, and many had hoped as the Messiah that he would save Israel from Roman oppression. But the angel declares that that was not God's agenda. Uh, God's agenda was not to save his people from physical enemies, but some, from something much greater, and that is from sin. God knows that the root, brothers and sisters, of everything we go through, of all the calamities, of all the difficulties, of all the trials that we go through, is our sin. And so God could have freed his people. He had the power to free his people from their enemies. But he said, no, I want you to see that I am a God who does things even greater than that. And um, so he frees them from their sin. And he frees them from the greatest problem of humanity, and that is to be at odds with God. Jesus saves his people even from that. So the birth of Jesus begins the unfolding of God's long-promised salvation. And we read in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, the birth of Jesus shows us that God is with us. Now, we know that God is with us, first of all, sort of in a general sense. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so God is present with every person all the time. Um, let me just read to you uh, one example of that from Psalm 139, a very well-known verse, uh, chapter, Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. But what we need to understand is, and what Matthew's trying to state here is, is that God's not just with us in a general sense, like we talk about in Psalm 139, but he is with us in a special sense. And we need to examine, and I want us to look at, for a large part of our time, Isaiah 7. Because this quote that, that Matthew quotes in verse 23 is from Isaiah 7, verse 14. And I want us to see what it reveals to us about Emmanuel, God with us. 
And the first thing I want us to see is that it reveals to us that God is a God to be reckons, reckoned with. God is a God to be reckoned with. God entered into human history and he declares that he is entering our realm and that he must be reckoned, we must reckon with him. And, and this is so important that the Lord took pains to prepare his people to recognize the weight of his coming, to, to prepare us for Emmanuel, God with us. So God predicted it and he sent an Old Testament prototype of it. And, and I want us to look at Isaiah 7, and I, I want us to, to look at the context of this, the verse that we read in verse 14 so we, that we can understand. It really revolves around Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah. Now, kids, you remember, that's the southern tribe, and then the northern tribe was Israel. And so he was the king of, of the southern tribe of Judah. He had two neighboring kings, uh, Pekah, king of the northern tribe of Israel, and also Rezan, king of Aram, or Syria. And these two kings were wanting to, to come and to march against uh, Ahaz and to take over his kingdom. And so they would have taken his land and they, they would have divided it amongst themselves. And we read in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7 of Isaiah that Ahaz and the people, they shook with fear. These kings were a force to be reckoned with. Now, Ahaz was, was not a godly man. He was not a believer. And yet God sent Isaiah the prophet to offer him a gracious blessing. Isaiah said in, in verses 4, we see it in verse 7, he said, Do not be afraid. The evil plan for invasion will fail. And since Isaiah knew that Ahaz might be skeptical, he, he adds a couple of thoughts here for Ahaz to consider. First, he warned them, and he warned him in, in, in the latter part of verse 9, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. You will not be firm at all. If you don't put your trust in the Lord, if you don't look to him for your salvation, then you will not stand. Second, he offered this in verse 11. He said, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. And then he said that God would grant that sign and uh, show you that he will deliver you. Unfortunately, as I said, Ahaz uh, really wanted no part of Isaiah. He really wasn't uh, a man who feared the Lord uh, or God or, or God's prophet. So he had wanted no part of Isaiah. He wanted no part of a sign. He didn't believe the Lord would deliver him. Instead, Ahaz actually had his own plan of escape. He'd already devised how he was going to deliver himself. And the way he was going to do that is he was going to make an alignment with the most powerful king in the region, which was the king of Assyria. And he would come in and he would destroy these other two nations. But Ahaz was unwilling to admit his plan to Isaiah. So he uses a lot of pious ploy. Yeah, he couches it in religious language to cover his rebellion. And he said, look at verse 12. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. In other words, he wanted to sound very religious. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And it is true, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we not put God to the test. We shouldn't demand that the Lord gives us signs and wonders. We shouldn't say, Lord, you need to do this and this and this, and then, and only then, will I believe you. But in this case, it was a little bit different. The Lord had offered the sign. The Lord had said, I will send you a sign, 
to show you that what I'm giving you is true. And so while Ahaz sounded very pious, he actually was saying, look, God, I want no dealings with you. I don't need your gifts. I don't need your signs. I can take care of my own destiny. I got this all figured out. And so Isaiah replies, because obviously the Lord knows this, and, and so does this prophet, that whether Isaiah wanted a sign or not, he would receive one. And that's what we read in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that word there, virgin, can be a young maiden. It can mean that, but it also can mean a virgin, someone who's not been with a man. Now we know in Isaiah's day that that prophecy was fulfilled um, in the sense that it was a young woman who, who bore a son. And that event did actually take place. And so, therefore, some scholars want to take this and say, well, then, therefore, really, when it's talking about Mary being a virgin, it's really just talking about her being a young woman. But if you look back at Matthew's gospel, you'll see that a number of times, Matthew is very careful to be clear that Mary and Joseph had not been together intimately. As a matter of fact, he makes a point at the end that even after they got married, that, that Joseph knew her not until Christ had been born. So Mary was a virgin. But anyway, that's, that's, I digress there. Back to the story with Isaiah. Isaiah said to King Ahaz that before this child uh, was old enough to know his right from his left, these two kings that were going to attack Ahaz would be destroyed. We see that in verse 16. But after that, Isaiah says in verse 17 that God will bring the king of Assyria, which Ahaz wouldn't have had a problem with because that's exactly who he wanted to come to deliver him but, um, because he wanted this mighty warrior king to, to fight for him. But Isaiah prophesied that that mighty army of Assyria would come and it would sweep away the invaders as Ahaz had hoped, but Assyria would be hard to control. We see in verse 18 that Assyria will be like flies or bees swarming. Um, we see later on in, in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, uh, that they'll be like a flood bursting its banks. We read this, that the army will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. O Emmanuel. Now, when we hear that word, O Emmanuel, in this context, it sounds sort of uh, odd. It doesn't really have a direct connection with the birth of this baby in verse 14, nor of the Christ child later on. But if you look at the context, let me read uh, Isaiah 8, 9, and 10. It becomes more clear. The prophet says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all your far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. In other words, God is with Ahaz, whether he likes it or not. And Ahaz, even though he rejects God's deliverance, believing he could handle his problems on his own, uh, so the Lord allows Assyria to come. And to do what he's going to do and even to capture Ahab. But God tells Ahaz, after all that happens, you will still need to deal with me. Because I 
am with you. You may not want me to be Emmanuel, God with you, but whether you want me or not, I am still with you. And while you may not want my blessing, you will receive my curse. And, and God dis, does this by letting Ahaz taste the folly of inviting Assyria to be his deliverer rather than the Lord. And so Emmanuel teaches that if we reject God's gracious deliverance and seek to work out something for ourselves, we may succeed in the short run. And that's what Ahaz did. He, he did, Ahaz uh, did get what he wanted from Assyria. He did get rid of these, foreign, these other kings that were seeking to take his land. But he got more than what he wanted. Assyria stuck around, making Ahaz his vassal. And so it is in our day, as we seek to work out our own deliverance, it may seem effective for a while, but then trouble comes swirling up to our necks. Um, we might put it this way, we might say we sort of get in over our heads, right? Uh, the, the trouble that we have. And so we might look for deliverance, we might look for purpose, we might look for meaning, we might look for something to fill that, that ache of our hearts and money and our careers, or maybe in, in bodily health and, and strength, we're a fitness buff, and, and so we look to try to bring control and some sense of meaning into our life through these things. Maybe it's through education and skills. Maybe it's through family or having a network of, of people. All these things work for a season, but none can match the eternal gracious deliverance that God offers to us. And so the original Emmanuel prophecy meant that God offers to be present to bless his people. But if they refuse his blessing, he will still be present but in this case, to judge. In Ahaz's day, God promised to be with Ahaz in a sign. But now as we look at Matthew's gospel, Jesus will be God with us in person. Not just as a sign, but in person. And as in Ahaz's day, God's design in Matthew is to bless his people through Emmanuel. But some people will respond to the birth of Jesus with indifference, much like Ahaz did. Turn with me, if you would, to, to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 9. And we see this rejection of God. We read of Christ, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see, even in Jesus' day, there were people who rejected him, the religious leaders who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Herod, who said that he wanted to worship Christ, but he really just wanted to kill him. There were those who did not receive him. Um, we see people today in our lives who also reject Emmanuel. They may think Christmas is a nice tradition. The story of Jesus is a, an amusing tale that some people tell and they happen to believe. They may be even happy for friends or neighbors who are comforted to think that there's supernatural power watching over them. These people are fine with that. If you want to believe that, that's fine with you. But I don't believe that. But such thinking completely misses the point 
of Isaiah and Matthew, Emmanuel is not a religious option for those who choose to embrace it. Emmanuel is the truth, whether we choose to embrace it or not, that God is present, that he has come in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people like to pretend uncomfortable events never really happen, whether that be the Holocaust or Hiroshima or the slave trade. And we, we've seen even recent examples of people who seek to erase the events of the past that are not pleasant as if they think that they can make those things go away by simply destroying monuments or rewriting history books or whatever. But Emmanuel is a reality that cannot be erased. When God enters our lives, he does so to turn us upside down because he loves us. Because our hearts are too often set upon the things of this world. Our hearts go after desires that are, that are not good for us. Uh, ones that do not honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to change us. He, he makes us new creatures. He changes our priorities. He, he totally changes our lives. That we might truly enjoy him. And enjoy life. Uh, and at everlasting so God with us is a reality that confronts us as he is present with us. But according to Matthew and Emmanuel's prophecy, it is also a comfort to those who receive him. If you still have your Bibles open to John 1, let me, let me read the rest of that passage that I read from earlier. John 1, begin with verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, the shepherds, the wise men, the centurion, the man born blind, proud Saul of Tarsus, who was later called Paul, Timothy, and many others, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so as Matthew says, that with Jesus' birth, God entered into human history in a new way. He is, for those that believe in him, he comes with power and for blessing. If we believe, brothers and sisters, he is with us to bless and to save us. And so for those who have faith in Christ, it is a time of great rejoicing. I want you to see something about Matthew's gospel this whole idea of Emmanuel, God with us, is sort of seen throughout Matthew's gospel. Actually, it's, it's, it's sort of shown in three different places. At the beginning, the middle, and the end of his gospel. Um, in the beginning, it's in verses 21 through 23. We read that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is with us to save us from our sins. That he has come as the God-man, the perfect sacrifice that he might come and to provide for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, and give us new life in him only. But then also, if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, we read that Jesus is with us to purify his church. Um, let me read Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, or there I am in the midst of them. Now, we oftentimes use this verse to find assurance that God hears us 
when we gather together as a church, as we gather specifically maybe to pray. But in its context, Jesus is talking about a particular scenario. He's talking about the agony of church discipline when, when a Christian would persist in their sin and they would not repent. And when the leaders have to deal with such rebellion. And Jesus at that time is Emmanuel, God with us, to preserve the purity of his church. And then, if you turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 20, we read Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, to expand his church. Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he directs his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, which is an impossible task, humanly speaking. But Jesus declares in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That our God is with us in those things that he calls us to. He is present with his people. What a comfort to know that Jesus is God with us. It reminds me, um, I know when I went to Bangladesh and I was uh, training local pastors and, and I had an interpreter with me that went with me everywhere I went. And I will tell you, I stuck very closely to that interpreter because I didn't know the language. I didn't know the customs. I didn't know the people. They drove crazy over there. I knew I would die if I didn't stay close to my interpreter. And he sort of got me through. Uh, he, he was a, a great comfort to have all along the way. Even more so, Christ is always with us as his children. We are never alone. We are never powerless or helpless. Even when we are timid in what he commands us, brothers and sisters, he is present with us. He gives us the strength to do those things that he calls us to do. He loves us more than we can imagine. If you've been with us in this uh, series on gentle and lowly, you know that. You've seen the love of Christ uh, expounded for you, laid out before you from the scriptures, maybe in a way that you've never seen before. If you've not read that book, I encourage you to do so. But it is a comfort to see how God loves us. What a comfort when we are lonely and sick and guilt-ridden or afraid. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But brothers and sisters, he is not simply here to meet our felt needs to give us what we desire. That's not what I mean when I say God is with us. He's here to, to make our life as comfortable as possible or, or in the ways that we may want it to be. When God enters our lives, He oftentimes turns us upside down. He changes our lives. He makes it different. Sometimes He walks us through very difficult times because He wants to change us. He wants to reveal Himself to us in ways that we will only know as we go through those things. But in those times, in those difficulties, in those things we wrestle with, God is with us. He in all his power. Emmanuel, God with us. He comes to us this morning, brothers and sisters, as God Emmanuel, commanding your trust. He comes commanding your repentance to turn from a life on your terms to a life on his own, to trust him. He's asking you to give up the idea that you can do life on your own. You can't. I can't. None of us can. You need the God who promises to be with us in Jesus Christ. 
And maybe as you've listened, you've realized that you've been living life on your own terms for too long. And today is the day to come and to bend your knee to the Lord Jesus. Let me invite you to simply, quietly, to turn to Him. To cry to Him. To ask Him to be your rescuer. He will if you look to Him. If you'd like to talk to somebody after the service, I'll, I'll be here. Or if you're watching via the live stream, call the church office or contact us via email. I would love to meet with you and to talk with you and to pray with you. It may be that the Lord is calling you, brothers and sisters, to come to Him for the first time. But it also may be that you have lived as if God is not Emmanuel. That you have lived your life as you wanted. You compartmentalized your life where you have your church life and then you have the rest of your life. But He calls you to give your all to Him. To, to, to trust Him. To look to Him. As your Emmanuel, to follow him, to obey him, knowing that he is the God who loves you. He is the God who has come to do his work of deliverance in your life. Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon this this morning. Father, how we praise you for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, one of us, one to whom we may go, who sympathizes with us in our weakness, our suffering, our sin-bearer. But Lord, we also pray for one another. Some of us I've been walking with Jesus for many years and, and still we're tempted to believe that we can do this on our own, that we can tough it out, that we're strong enough, wise enough, and good enough. And again and again in your, your providence, you show us that we're just not. And we need to repent and to turn from ourself to the Savior once again. Some of us are, are here and we never have considered surrendering to Him, to giving up life on our own terms and being brought home and rescued by the Savior. And we pray for them. And we ask you, O Lord, that they might cry to you, ask you for forgiveness, and come to trust in you. We pray that the Lord Jesus, God with us, might come to them, be with them, dwell in them, and in all of us, that our whole lives, in all glory and praise, 
might be yours forever. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.